Once again, I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. Our focus this morning will be in verses 36 through 38. However, for context, I will begin our reading in verse 31. This is the tail end of John 13. Uh, We will uh, pick up again in John 14, the week after Easter. Uh, We are getting close to the holiday season, and so in a few weeks we'll focus on Palm Sunday and then on Easter. Uh, Next week we will probably have more of a mission theme focus. Uh, It was on our schedule as a snow day, not that we expected it to snow next week, but just in case it snowed, it really messes up our schedule uh, in terms of who's doing what passage and when, and so I built a snow day in. And this is the first I've done that in a couple of years, and it didn't snow. So I don't know if there's a correlation, uh, but it gives us a week. And so rather than digging in and then taking a break, uh, we will uh, finish up with this chapter and then um, pick up again in this study of this gospel in a couple of weeks. But again, our our reading this morning, beginning in verse 31, though our focus will be uh, in verse 36. Here's the word of God, John 13, 31. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. Jesus answered, will you lay your life down for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of our God. Let's go to our God in prayer, inviting him by his spirit to speak to us. Father, we do come to this passage familiar to many confusing to some and perhaps inspiring to others. And pray, Lord, that you would not leave us to our own intellectual understanding, but that you, by your Spirit, would speak to us, that we would see in this passage what you would have us to see, that it would shape the way that we think, it would shape the values that we hold, it would therefore shape the way that we live. But above all, Lord, may we see in this passage our need for Jesus, and that he is your provision to us, and that he is more to us than we imagine, than we ask, maybe even that we hope for. Lord, grant to us that as we see him, we will be changed to be made like him. Use us in this way, Lord. You would receive glory, and that we would find our joy in him, through him, and him at work within us. We pray all of this in Christ's holy name. Amen. Well, as some of you are probably aware, the 90th Annual Academy Awards were held uh, a week ago today. By some accounts, it was held to more fanfare than fans, 
as some of what I have read indicated that the viewing audience was down over 20%, and some news outlets have suggested that this was the lowest number of people watching on TV since the Academy Awards have been broadcast on television. Nevertheless, as they say in show business, the show must go on, and so the show did go on, and they handed out their awards. The award, Oscar Award for the Best Picture went to The Shape of Water. The Best Actor Oscar went to Gary Oldman for his portrayal of Winston Churchill in The Darkest Hour. And the Oscar for the Best Actress went to Frances McDormand for her work in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing's, Missouri, a movie which I will confess I never heard of. I have no idea what it is like, and frankly, the name doesn't cause me to think that I would want to go see it. Now, if you saw it and you loved it, great. Maybe I, I certainly, since I have no idea what it is, I would have a lot of room to stand corrected. But those were the major news stories coming out of the Academy Awards held last week. But having reading about the Academy Awards this week and preparing for this message, it got me thinking, what if they were to give Academy Awards, or if the Academy was to give awards for the Bible characters and stories, the greatest story ever told? If they did such thing, no doubt, at least in my mind, is that the Oscar for the best supporting actor would go to the Apostle Peter. Peter is involved in some of the best scenes in all of the scripture, and he has some of the most memorable lines that, uh, as well. I mean, think about some of the things that we have seen in Peter and we have heard from Peter. In response to the miraculous catch of fish, Jesus had not been with the disciples. The disciples, many of whom were professional fishermen, had been out fishing all night, coming back with nothing. And Jesus, who's a carpenter, shows up and tells them, throw your net on the other side. No doubt these fishermen, just to humor this guy, threw their net out and miraculously they pull it in with more of a haul than their nets could contain and the nets were breaking. And Peter's response to Jesus at that was, Lord, depart from me, I am a sinful man. What a beautiful awareness of the holiness of God in the person of Christ and as how we are to approach him. You think in another time that when the crowds were leaving Jesus, Jesus and his disciples had actually tried to get away for some R&R. &R. Uh, they were worn out from their ministry and their mission and they were getting away and went across uh, the, the, the river and the sea uh, to uh, I guess a and b somewhere uh, over there, but I guess, and, um, but the crowds found them. And Jesus, having compassion on them, uh, not only did he give them a mini-seminar of life in the kingdom of God, but he had his disciples to feed them. But after he had fed them, and when the people were drawn to him, Jesus said something at the end of that message uh, that disgusted many of them. He told them that unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. Apparently that didn't settle well with the fish and the bread that was in their stomach from the lunch disgusted, the crowds began to leave, all of them. And Jesus speaks to his disciples that were still there with him, and looking at the crowds leaving in the background, Jesus speaking what seems to be somewhat discouraged tone, said, you don't want to leave me too, do you? To which Peter responded, Lord, to who else would we go? 
You alone have the words of life. We think of another scene in which Peter is involved. In a stormy night, really that same night that Jesus had sent his disciples on ahead toward Jerusalem, he stayed back in order to pray. And as Jesus came walking out on the water uh, toward his disciples, first as they were frightened, but when they recognized that it was Jesus that was coming close to them, Peter said in a paraphrase, Lord, can I play too? Uh, in other words, he said, Lord, bid me to come. Invite me out on the water and I'll walk on the water as well. What an amazing awareness that God can do amazing things in his people. And yet on that same night, we see him being both faithful and foolish. It certainly seems to be a pattern in his life. There was a time when Jesus had asked his disciples, who do men say that I am and who do you say that I am? Peter's response is, you are the Christ. But a few moments later, that building upon that revelation, that understanding that he is, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And Jesus explained how the Messiah would work out God's plan for the people, ushering in the kingdom, and that he would suffer and be crucified. Peter thought that it would be his place to correct the Lord. And he said, Never, Lord, far be it, such a thing will never happen to you. To which Jesus issued the strongest statement that he does anywhere in the scriptures, even far stronger than he did to Judas when he said, get behind me, Satan. See, G G G Peter, not understanding how God was going to work and the purpose for which Christ had come, trying to spare Jesus from the death that Jesus said was necessary for anyone to have eternal life. The words spoken were counter to the plan of God. We see that Peter was both insightful and foolish, which simply means that he's a well-rounded character. And we see that over and over again through the scriptures. That he's both wise and foolish, He's passionate and faithful and yet fearful. He is a normal guy that has extraordinary moments in his life. He's characterized by two redeeming traits. One is he has no pretense. And the second is that he loves Jesus. As we look at the text that we have this morning, the setting is still in the upper room. Night has come. The disciples are all still gathered around the table, except that the place to Jesus is left, the place that was reserved for the guest of honor or the one who was to be viewed as the close friend of the host, that spot had been vacated. Judas had gone into the night, a night that for him would have no morning, and his place remained, remained empty. And yet the tone seemed to have changed in the conversation after Judas went out. Judas, Jesus speaking now seems to have more energy and 
most commentators would say that his tone is that of rejoicing. He's not rejoicing that Judas has left. That certainly brought him great sorrow. But what he's rejoicing in that we see in verses 31 and 32 is that he's rejoicing and that he would now be glorified, that God would now be glorified through him. He is rejoicing in the cross as he's explaining what is going to take place over the course of the next few hours. Now, for some that may be a little bit confusing. He's rejoicing over the cross. I mean, I thought Jesus dreaded the cross. We saw that, that he was thinking of the cross and we get to see inside of him and he was dreading and he was deeply troubled because of what was going to take place on the cross that now is only a few hours away. And here he seems to be rejoicing as he's talking about the cross. And so it would be a natural question for us to say, is it possible and how can somebody both dread and rejoice over the same thing? Well, the writer to the book of Hebrews gives us a clue. In Hebrews 12:2, we are told this, that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. In other words, it doesn't in any way minimize the horrendous thing that was going to take place uh, and, and what Jesus was going to experience that was causing him dread. He knew that it was going to be awful. So that dread was very real, and, and it pops back up again later this night because he, in the garden, as he's praying, said, Lord, if there's any other way, let's go with the other plan. Nevertheless, knowing that there is no other way, then I submit to I submit to this cross. And yet here, that thing that is causing him such dread that he's rejoicing in, the reason he's rejoicing in is not because it somehow becomes less ugly and less painful for him. But compared to what is accomplished by his giving his life on the cross, the suffering that he will endure is less than the joy that will be his and the glory that will belong to God. The joy that will be his and the glory that will be to God is that through Jesus' death and then ultimate resurrection, that a people that were far from God would be redeemed and reconciled and therefore be God's treasured possession. That is you. That is me. That is everyone who is trusting in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus looked at what was going to be accomplished through his suffering and through his death on the cross, he was able to rejoice even though inside he was dreading it, as we will see in a few weeks, to the point that his body was sweating blood. The evidence of stress and dread that was coming out of him. But here Jesus is speaking, and he is not only enduring the cross, but he is rejoicing over it because of what would be accomplished through his faithfulness on it. And then Jesus says something that is somewhat mysterious. Certainly the disciples didn't understand it. And sometimes we may miss the meaning of it as well. But Jesus said, it is only for a little while longer that I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And it seems that last phrase, where I'm going, you cannot come, was the only thing that was sticking in Peter's head. Because if we were to follow what we read right after that in verses 34 and 35, the Lord gives us a new command. 
an incredible command that is really the essence of the Christian life, or at least it is the necessary addendum that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion, that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, all of our mind, and all of our strength, and yet it's the nature of loving other people. Rather than loving other people the way that we would want to be loved, we are now commanded, if we are to be followers of Christ, to love other people the way that Jesus has loved us. And the depths and the richness and the beauty of something like that, you would think would grab people's attention and that's what they're going to talk about, but not for Peter. Peter doesn't seem to have heard that at this point because he's still stuck on that, where I'm going, you cannot come. Because We see that because in the next verse, verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Kind of that whole new commandment thing just went right over his head. He just, he just missed that. He was so fixated on the fact that Jesus was planning to go away somewhere. And Jesus reiterates to him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. So Peter's so focused on the fact that Jesus is saying he's going away. It's a mystery to him that he's perplexed. It's not a bad question. Where is he going to go that the disciples aren't able to follow and then indicates that they're going to follow later? Well, where he's going first is to the cross. And that's the reason that nobody was able to follow him. Because he alone would go to the cross and he alone would give his life that would redeem a people. And yet he does say to Peter, you will follow me. And if tradition is correct, he did follow him sometime later after a life of fruitful ministry, uh, blessing people and seeing God bring people to Christ through Peter's ministry. Tradition tells us that Peter himself was arrested, tried, condemned, and the way of death was going to be crucifixion. To which Peter replied, he's not worthy to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord, so he asked to be crucified upside down. But the other place that we see that Jesus is going, where the disciples will one day follow, and this is the distinction between what he had said to the Jews several chapters back in John chapter 7, I'm going someplace, you're going to look for me, you won't find me, and you can't come. And what he says to the disciples is you will come later. Is he, we will see in chapter 14, he's going into God's presence. He is going into heaven. And it's not that Jews can't go, but it was a confrontation of saying, those who believe in me will go. Those who refuse to believe in me, you will never find me. You won't be able to go where I am going. And so Jesus is speaking and saying, where I am going, you can't come. At least you can't come now. And Peter didn't like that at all. As Peter asked the question, why can't I come now? Lord, I will lay my life down for you. In other words, I don't know about these other guys, but I am in it no matter what. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it for all things. And I think Peter was right. I think he meant it. I believe that if the Roman soldiers had barged in right then and there, Peter would have stood up and tried to block the door and tell Jesus to escape out a back door, at least encourage him to do so. We know that because only a little while later, not in this room, but out and about in the garden, the Roman soldiers did show up. And rather than running and hiding or ducking or bargaining, Peter stood up, pulls out his sword, and engages in battle with armed Roman soldiers. Courage, passion, driven by his love for Jesus. 
And so when Peter says, Lord, I will lay my life down for you, this was not just big talk. This was the expression of his heart. This was what he believed he would do, and then only a little while later shows that he would do. Because you don't engage the Roman army that are, uh, with a sword and expect not to come out at least somewhat bruised, or at least not willing to be somewhat bruised. But because Peter was so passionate and so confident in his commitment to Jesus, Jesus' response to him must have hit him like a ton of bricks. Will you, Peter, really die for me? I tell you the truth. Before the sun rises, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. We know that this hit him hard because we don't hear from Peter again through the rest of this whole discourse. We see him in action, but as Jesus teaches for the rest of the night, he seems to have been quiet. Maybe he was thinking, just give me the chance and I'll prove myself. Maybe he was reeling from being bruised in ego, in heart, by one that he loved so much. But we do know, and we'll see in a study later, that what Jesus predicted is true came to being. Though Peter stood up to the Roman guards after Jesus was arrested and all the disciples were scattered, no doubt numbed, feeling as if this just can't be quite a surreal evening. Lack of sleep, people afraid, people going, the world now seeming to be turned upside down. Some of the people saw Peter and said, we, we recognize you. You were one of those that was with Jesus. And he said, I don't know the guy. Same thing happened again. And finally, in what seems to be a total turnabout, a young servant girl, one who had no power, no status, she saw, Jesus, saw Peter and said, I know you. You are one of those Jesus guys. And yet again, Peter said, I don't know the guy. And immediately upon that denial, he hears the rooster crow. Sun is coming up, but he realized what Jesus had said is true, that he had, in the course of a few hours, denied the one that he loved, that he fought for, and pledged his life for he, no doubt, was totally undone and broken. But the question this raises in many of our minds, the question that it should raise for all of us, is how can one with such love for Jesus, with such a commitment, and such courage, in the course of only moments, become one who so cowardly denies Jesus? How can one who was willing to stand up to armed Roman soldiers be afraid of a little servant girl? 
And the reason that question is important is not just because it satisfies our curiosity, it burns out of the text, because I believe that it screams to us because we look at this and we wonder what I stand for. I mean, if somebody like Peter is going to turn in that way, would I turn? What would it take for me to turn? And we look at Peter and we wonder, how can this be? The first thing that we need to recognize is this, is that Peter, like us, is a complex individual, far more complex than we tend to attribute to the characters that we see in the Bible when we see them. So the reality is we tend to look at the Bible and its characters as really relatively flat. We want to go see the good guys and the bad guys. We want to see wisdom and we want to see foolishness. We want to be like the good guys and to embrace the wisdom and we want to and we may even see ourselves as unlike those who are the bad guys and those who are foolish. So we go and we don't recognize that these are people who are just like us and there is a complexity of emotion and in Peter's world, just like our world, is that when life doesn't go the way that we expect it, then we become emotionally, mentally, and then sometimes actively very different people than we would have been even days or moments before. You see, that's what Peter was experiencing here. His life has now been turned upside down. He's committed three years to following this guy. He is convinced that this is God's promised Messiah. He's going to usher in the kingdom of God, and he's given his life to this guy. Now he's arrested. He knows very well what's going to happen to him now that he's arrested by the Roman soldiers. That he knew that everybody wanted to kill Jesus. Now that they got their hands on him, there was going to be a kangaroo trial, and there wasn't going to be anything that was going to stop them from killing him. But how could this possibly be? I've given my life to this, and if he's dead, dead saviors don't do much good to anybody. His world was rocked. Now, we experience difficulties in our life, things that make us ask about the foundations of our, our lives and our commitment, and we wonder maybe is there a God, and if, God is, if there is a God, then does God know what's going on and does he care what's going on and if I'm experiencing difficulty and hardship then why is God allowing that and those are very important questions and we deal with them and we should deal with them very honestly but even when we are there we're not at the same level of of despair that Peter probably was facing because for us Jesus's death and resurrection is a historical reality we may doubt it but it doesn't change the fact that it happened but for Peter, he didn't understand, no matter how much Jesus had spoken, that Jesus must die and that he would rise again. All he knew is the one who was going to be the leader, the deliverer, the savior, is now going to die. So everything seems to have come to an end. His whole world was in turmoil. And we see him responding to that. One of the things that I want us to walk away from today, for some of you, it's a reminder for others of you, it is perhaps new, is to recognize that when we see these people in the Bible, we need to see ourselves in them. Not just how they respond so that we do the good things and avail, but we need to recognize they are experiencing and feeling the same things that we are doing. And we need to admit to ourselves that our tendency is to come to these texts 
only looking for the moral rather than to seeing ourselves. And the reason we need to see ourselves in these characters is because we need the same grace that they needed and that they received. But only by acknowledging that we have a tendency to miss our opportunity to identify with these characters are we going to be able to squeeze the depths of grace that God is giving to us through these stories and apply them to our lives? And acknowledging that we are just prone to come to the flat characterization of these people is one of the ways in which we are able to change how we look at it. In other words, when we acknowledge that this is what we do, then we become aware and we are able to see more deeply and more roundly who these people are and how God has been at work in their lives and in their circumstances so that those things become alive to us as well. When we are aware of that, then we are able to be trained and train ourselves uh, to see all that God wants us to see. So what do we need to see in Peter, who is like us in so many ways? I think the first thing we need to see is this, is that Peter is demonstrating a very shallow concept of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, at least at this point in his walk with the Lord. New Testament Bible scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says this, Peter thinks that the Christian faith is mainly something we do for Jesus, and not supremely what Jesus continually does for us, to us, and through us as his disciples. He goes on and says, this is a frequent misunderstanding in Christendom. In other words, Peter's shallow understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ is something that is very common for us who are followers of Jesus Christ today. We very easily measure our relationship with God on the things that we do rather than being reminded that the essence of Christianity is what Jesus has done for us, what the Holy Spirit is doing in us, and what God has promised to do through us. We allow the Holy Spirit to drive our lives and to live in accordance with God's instructions for us. It's not unimportant what we do, but fundamentally, we need to reverse our tendency to think like Peter, that being a follower of Christ is primarily about what we do. It's primarily about being recipients of God's grace and then transformed by his grace, empowered to obey what he has commanded and to engage in mission of loving others the way that Christ has loved us. And so we need to see that that seems to be at root of Peter's problem. The second thing we need to see is related to that because it's the expression of Peter's shallow understanding is that Peter seems to have an erroneous estimation of his own abilities, of his own talents. Peter certainly had strengths. Probably chief among his strengths were his passion and his commitment. Again, he's saying in the presence of all the other disciples, I don't know about you, but I 
will follow Jesus to death. Quite bold. We also need to notice that Peter's strengths become the source of his presumption. I am a good follower of you, Lord, because I'm passionate and because I am committed. What else is there to being a follower? But we definitely need to see that this great apostle fails exactly in the area of his great strengths. And it's precisely because his world has become unhinged. Because the circumstances of life have gone in a way that he didn't expect them to go. And it transformed him from being one who was courageous to one who acts cowardly. We need to understand that following Jesus requires more than our human actions and abilities. In fact, we are called to do what we are unable to do with our natural talents. And it's important that we understand that every one of us, every one of you, has certain natural talents. And we need to take inventory of what those talents are. For one reason, we give thanks to God because they are his gifts to us. And for some of you, it is your intellect. For others of you, it's your personality. For some of you, it may be your status or your connections. For others, it may be your passion and your zeal and your diligence. And you've been engaged in tremendous ministry to those who are hurting and in need. Some of you have great fruit because in your intellect and in your understanding and your prayer life, you've had insight and you have fruit as a result of teaching, whether to children or adults. We all need to be aware of what our strengths are, and we give thanks to God for them. But we need to see in Peter a reminder to us that sometimes it is at the very point of our strengths that, they're, that we are prone to fail, primarily because we become confident in our strengths to such a degree that we don't recognize that every one of us is cracked. And in that crack, when stress comes, we are prone to fail. It's been said that a great act is far easier than a life of action. The life of action that we are called to happens only when Christ's life is alive within us. And we receive that by grace through faith and repentance, and we live our lives being aware of God's grace that not only forgives, but empowers and enables, and yet our weakness as well. See, rather than focusing only on our strengths, the scriptures, the Apostle Paul helps us with a very beautiful and concise statement that we need to take seriously. The alternative to considering the Christian life in a shallow way, thinking that it's just about our commitment and to do the best we can with the strengths that we've been endowed with. But listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. See, the Apostle Paul, who certainly was endowed with tremendous gifts of his own and had borne great fruit, both as a missionary 
and suffered for the sake of that, but his intellect and his diligent study and his ability to mentor and disciple and to teach and extract from the scriptures the tremendous and complex and deep truths of God, far more than anyone else in all of history, he said that regardless of all of those strengths that he had, he says elsewhere that he just considers all of that like trash, rubbish, dumb, compared to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And here he's saying, even though all of those things are true about me, here's the way that I live my life, by boasting not in my strengths and in my fruit, but in my weakness. And the reason that he does that, and the reason that we are encouraged to do that very same thing, the antidote for us failing in the way that Peter failed, is because boasting in our weakness makes much of God and less about ourselves. In other words, when we boast in our weakness, we are reminding ourselves and anybody who hears that it's not about us. It's all about God. And that it means that God gets all of the glory, that we are focused on focusing the spotlight on God's power that is at work, that redeemed us and has, is, is in us and shaping us, changing us and bearing fruit. And it highlights the glory of the deliverance that God has done with no help from us. And it forces us to trust in God alone with a promise that is attached to it. See, in boasting of our weakness is not just a matter of just going, talking about all the bad things and humble brag. Boasting in our weakness doesn't mean that we deny that God is at work within us and that he's endowed us with certain strengths and certain giftedness. But what Paul tells us is that when we are aware of our weakness and we depend on God, God's power is at work and is evident and obvious to us and it bears fruit that we, through our natural talents, cannot do. So as we look at Peter, we need to recognize that we are like him in many ways. We are prone and susceptible to the very same things that he has done. We may not reach his highs, and I don't know whether we'll reach his low, but we live in the same neighborhood. And the antidote is to remind ourselves, because we are able to see him, to see ourselves in him, to recognize that we are blessed, but we are also weak. And we don't need to be afraid of our weakness. In fact, we should embrace our weakness. And we boast about the fact that our weakness, that's what we say, isn't this amazing? You know, I may be able to do these things good, but I'm not, I'm not good here. And that sometimes causes problems, but God is at work within me. And he bears fruit despite the fact that I have weaknesses. So when I fail, or when things don't go the way that I want, it's not focused on my strengths, and my failures are not my undoing. It turns my attention back to God, enables me to confess that I am weak, I am frail, and I am in constant need of God's grace within my life. And we then take encouragement from what happens later. See, Peter is a work in process, and so are we. After the resurrection, which is only a few weeks after what we see here taking place this night, Peter stands before the crowds of people, which included some of the people who had conspired to have Jesus arrested, who still had that same power and clout, who didn't like Jesus' followers any more than they liked Jesus. And he said, you put Jesus to death. But it was God's will. Because through Jesus' death, you have life. And standing before Caiaphas, who was involved in this whole injustice, 
Caiaphas pouring down the pressure to try to stop the spread of this Jesus talk. Peter says, should I listen to you or to God? I think I'll choose God. Saying this to the ruler, the person in power, the person who could have had him arrested and have him killed. Totally different demeanor because he had a greater understanding. God was at work within him and he had the Holy Spirit. But notice the promises that we have in this text. And also implied from it. God is at work in Peter and he is at work within us. And even at Peter's low point, well, before he'd gotten there, when Jesus knew that Peter would hit his low point. When Peter thought he was at his high point and Jesus said, you will betray me. Not just fail me, not just disappoint me, you will deny me, which is a form of betrayal. Peter is still the one. Peter is still among the ones to whom Jesus said, where I go, you can't go now, but you will go. Not only speaking of the cross, but into God's presence with Jesus forever. See, it's not our strengths, it's not our successes that get us into heaven, and it's not our failures that disqualify us. It's trusting in God, in the person of Jesus Christ, who has promised to send his Holy Spirit to dwell within all who believe, who is at work within us, who will make his glory shine, his power made known through our weakness. May God grant us the willingness to accept, embrace, and even boast about our weaknesses, that he might receive glory and we might receive freedom and joy. Father, we do pray that you would speak to us through the life of Peter here. Give us strength, not of ourselves, but strength to believe and to rest in Jesus, that we might have that freedom, that joy, and that fruit. May that be true for us as individuals and as a church. May it be contagious within this body and out among all believers that we encounter. May it be true of your church in all places. Be at work, Lord, we pray, for the sake of your name and the good of your people. We offer our prayer in Christ. Amen.